Hey, Grace, we're back here at the Museum of the Bible. Incredible place you have to visit. It's really awesome. We're talking about I want to believe this week, but Christians stand in the way. I introduced you last week to Drew. Now, I can't give all the information I gave last week. You have to check out last week's message. But Drew is the least likely person to go to church in the United States of America. Drew is a 22 to 35-year-old male. He thinks the Bible, which is why we're here, the Bible is full of fiction, not fact. Here's one other piece of information that's really important to today's message. Drew thinks that Christians and people who believe in the Bible do nothing but harm. They don't do any good. So that's why I'm thrilled that we're here with Charlotte. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for hosting us again today here at the museum. Charlotte, here's what I'm wondering. Is there a section here in the museum that focuses on the good that Christians do, people who believe in the Bible, that they do, their impact in the world? Absolutely. So here on our impact floor, we take a look at the influence of the Bible in our civilization. The Bible has had more impact on our culture, our world, than any other book in history. And on this floor, we look at how the biblical principles of compassion and justice inspired human rights leaders, civil rights leaders, healthcare workers, the earliest hospitals and hospices were founded with the biblical principles of caring for one another, taking care of the less fortunate and the sick. So we're very excited to have you to take a look at this floor. Ah, that's awesome, Charlotte. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned that because like hospitals and universities, there are things that I don't often think about, even as simple as like the Red Cross. I never thought about that before. Obviously started by Christians. Salvation Army, obviously started by Christians. Or do you just think about education or science? Now, next week, everybody, we're going to take a deep, deep dive into science because there is zero contradiction between the Bible and science. And you think about the scientific revolution that happened and all those great scientists, Newton and Bacon and Kepler. Now, the scientific revolution wasn't a Christian revolution, but it is true that almost... All the great leaders in science during that scientific revolution were all Christians. So next week, next week, we'll jump into that. But for today, Charlotte, do you have like a favorite exhibit on this floor that you really love? I do. I love our Washington Revelations experience. It's actually a simulated flight over Washington, D.C., showing you the biblical connections with many of our historic landmarks from the Lincoln Memorial to the very top of the Washington Monument, which is inscribed Laos Deo, the U.S. Capitol Dome, the MLK Memorial. It is so cool to see the Bible verses that are throughout Washington, D.C. So I'd love for you to check it out. Oh, Charlotte, there is no way, there's no way, Grace, that I'm leaving here today without riding that ride. That sounds incredible. I can't wait. Well, this place is wonderful, and I'm just looking forward to exploring it more today. Charlotte, can you lead the way? Absolutely. Follow me. So everybody, it is true. It is incredibly true that Christians have not been perfect. We are very imperfect. That's 100% true. Lots of mistakes have been made. However, what I would like to do is get real pragmatic, just get real factual here. Even in the midst of so much wrong being done and imperfection, the church, Christians, followers of Jesus have still been the leading force in the entire world for positive change. Like when Jesus said, be famous for loving people, followers of Jesus took him very seriously. It wasn't just another opinion. 
So here's what we want to talk about. Just the facts, okay? Christians have led the way on so many positive efforts when it comes to education and caring for people and loving on people, creating hospitals and orphanages, right? All the way from the early days. When the, when churches just first began, just think about this. Hey, just for 300 years, there weren't any church buildings, but when there finally were church buildings, you couldn't have a church building without having a hospital in the church building. You had to care for people. Fact or fiction, the civil rights movement, Dr. King, who led the civil rights movement, was a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and was rooted and founded in the commands of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Fact or fiction, that is a fact. The global slave trade, kind of the face around the ending of the global slave trade, fact or fiction, William Wilberforce was a follower of Jesus Christ through the commands of the Bible. That's just, that's just a fact. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Oxford, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all these great institutions of education, fact or fiction, started by Christians. They're all started by Christians. Jesus Christ said, make famous, loving people, helping people. When Jesus said, help the oppressed, help the poor, set people free, his followers took those commands very, very seriously and they set out to do it. So I know that Drew says, look, I only see the bad that followers of Christ are doing in the world. But the fact is, is that followers of Jesus Christ have been the leading force for positive change in the world for 2,000 years. Like if somebody was to say, hey, John, I really want to make a wise investment. And what I want to do with my wise investment is I want to make a positive change in the world with my time, my talent, my treasure. Like where should I invest myself? Where should I put my time? Where should I put my energy? Where should I put my education? Where should I put my money? If you're making a pragmatic decision, long-term, looking at the past for 2,000 years, even up to this day, the best place you could put your time, talent, and treasure is in the church because followers of Jesus Christ to this day and for the past 2,000 years have been the number one leading force for positive change in the world. Jesus Christ says in John 8, 32, the truth will set you free. Again, I know there's been a lot of wrong that's happened. There's no hiding that. We shouldn't deny it. There's been a lot of wrong. But think about this. In the midst of all that wrong, think about the tremendous amount of good and all the imperfection. Think about the fact that Christians have been the leading force for good. And why is that? Because they took Jesus Christ's words for making love famous, for helping people as not just another opinion, but that he was God. Now, does it ever give you a cause for pause? When you think about some scholars or some TV show or some documentaries as you know what, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus isn't God. Have you ever thought about this? What if you were to m- remove the key reason, the key reason why Christians are the leading force for good because Jesus is God and his command was to do that. If you took that out, what would then happen? Like if you're really concerned about the world becoming a better place, what if you took the lead reason? What if you took Michael Jordan off the court? 
What if you took LeBron James off the court? What if you took the leading reason of why Christians are doing all the good they're doing away? What if you took that off the table? What would be the result in the world? This is why it's so important for us to be factual. This is why it's so important for us to look at the evidence and where is the evidence leading us? Are Christians just good people? Is that why we've done so much good? No, absolutely not. I'm not a good person. The reason we do it is because Jesus is God and it's when he says be famous for love, it's more than just an opinion. God is speaking and we follow his commands. Oh, there are three things I really want to get into here because they, there have been these leading experts in these documentaries and these books, best-selling books. You look at Reza Aslan's book, Zealot, about Jesus, where he says Jesus is not God. It's a New York Times bestseller. You look at Bart Ehrman. He's a leading New Testament scholar, and he says that Jesus isn't God. And here's, here's what many of these experts, and then they're like, there's these lost gospels that give us a new view of Jesus, and he's not God, but it's a different picture. And so it just like, whoa, can I trust Jesus? Is all this for real? It undermines, right? It undermines actually the power of his words to make love famous. So what I do about it? So, so there's three things, actually, everybody. Number one is they say the gospels are anonymous. We have no idea who wrote them. They're anonymous. Number two, there's these lost gospels. All of a sudden, we've discovered these lost gospels, and it gives us a total different picture of Jesus. And the third and final thing is that Jesus never claimed to be God. He never, ever claimed to be God. So let's unpack those three things that are said so often that undermine, they come out on the TV, usually around Christmas or Easter, or there's a best-selling book on the New York Times, blah, blah, blah. Number one. The Gospels are anonymous. And the thought behind that is, is that decades, decades, decades after Jesus Christ, that somebody sat down and what Bart Ehrman likes to talk about is this telephone game. You know, you get to a party, you play a telephone game, you sit in a big circle and one person tells another person a simple phrase. And by the time you get all the way around the circle, everything has changed. Well, Ehrman says the same thing happens with Jesus Christ and who he is. What is identity? That after decades and decades and decades, the story changed that Jesus never claimed to be God. And what happened is decades later, you had people come along and say, this is what Jesus said, and this is who he claimed to be. But we can't be clear. And to give it credibility, they put the apostles' names on it. Now, who's an apostle? An apostle is a disciple, but around Jesus wears these 12 people who were eyewitnesses and we designate them as apostles. And so what many people say is, well, we just put it, we just attributed Matthew to Matthew and John to John. So I want to go back to the original question. How many copies of anonymous gospels do we have? Zero. If the gospels are truly anonymous, there should be floating out there somewhere at least one copy, two copies, 10 copies, because we have thousands of copies of the Gospels, we should have at least some copies that are anonymous. And we have zero. If the copies are truly anonymous, what you're going to get is you're going to get authorship attributed to different people, right? Because people say, well, Matthew wrote this one, or Jude wrote this one, or somebody, somebody, there's going to be conflict. You know how much conflict we got? Zero. Somehow think about this. Church leaders in Europe, Africa, 
in the Middle East, they didn't have email, they didn't have cell phones. Somehow, 100% of them said, Matthew was written by Matthew. And Mark was written by Mark. Luke was written by Luke and John was written by John. 100%. So we have no anonymous copies and we have 100% agreement. That should not be the case. If you have an anonymous writing in the Bible, it's much like the incredible book of Hebrews that's in the Bible. That's in a truly anonymous book. We didn't try to attribute to anybody. It's total, straight up. It is completely anonymous. All right. Secondly, were all four Gospels written by the apostles? No. The argument is, is that the Gospels are anonymous and we just tried to insert an apostle's name, attribute it to the apostle to give it credibility. Well, if that's the case, then of course, Every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is attributed to an apostle, but it's not. Mark and Luke aren't apostles. Why would we do that if we're falsely trying? Why would they do that if they were trying to falsely just drum up credibility? They Mark, he was not an eyewitness. Luke, Luke is a Gentile. If you're going to attribute something, a work, just to give it credibility, why not choose Peter, James, or John, the inner three of Jesus? Why don't you do that? But they didn't do that. They choose Mark and Luke, who is a Gentile, who are both outsiders, who came along and carefully got the information. Matter of fact, if you're going to try to give something credibility, why don't you just say Jesus wrote it? (laughs) I mean, that's like, whoa, why don't you do that? But they didn't do that. They didn't do that. Now look at this the lost gospels that people get so excited about. All the church leaders way, way back when, well, not all, many, many, many of the church leaders from way back when say those are all fakes and forgeries. And then look at the story they're telling us. This new picture of Jesus, are you sure you want this new picture of Jesus? Let me tell you about the gospel of Thomas. You know what the gospel of Thomas says? It tells one of the stories that Jesus was walking through the marketplace one day when he was a young boy and another child bumped into Jesus. You know what Jesus did to that child for bumping into him? He killed him. (laughs) He killed him. Are you sure you're excited about the gospel of Thomas? They're all fakes. They're all forgeries. The church leaders were clear on that. And it gives us a really wacky, crazy picture of Jesus that's completely inconsistent. Now, finally, did Jesus claim to be God? Yes, he did. And he did it in a very Jewish way. He did it constantly. He did it over and over again by asking questions. This is a very Jewish way. All right. So we're reading, we're reading the gospels today. And this is where context is king. Context is king. You're going to have to read this context. So, so when critics of the Bible are looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we all know we're in agreement. John was the last gospel written, written probably in the nineties. When we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, clearly written before John, and we say, hey, there's not any straight-up claims to divinity here by Jesus Christ. And yet what you get in John is you get a little more clear. And so that's their that's their critique. As time went on, Jesus was a man, and all of a sudden, decades later, he becomes God. Well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus constantly is saying that he is God. He's constantly claiming divinity. He's constantly allowing people to worship, but he's worship him. And nobody would do that unless they're God, but he's doing it in a very Jewish way. He's asked tons of questions. He tells parables and stories and riddles. He fulfills prophecies. It's completely immersed 
in the Jewish context, in the Jewish world. And that's the way that Jesus does it. But if you don't go back and look at the text in his context, you will. Now, here's the interesting thing. You look at Bart Ehrman, right? I just talked about him. He's a leading New Testament scholar, does not believe that Jesus is God. You look at Reza Aslan, wrote a New York Times bestseller, says, no, Jesus is not God. And both of them say, you can't take it in its context. There's no context of this. It's the If it's the word of God, then it just needs to speak to us too today. This is why it's so important. If I say, you know what, I don't want to take the text in context. I don't want to look at the text through ancient Jewish eyes. Nobody likes to be taken out of context. This is not the way to do good scholarship, okay? But this is what you end up with. You end up with this question and this confusion. Is Jesus claiming to be God? If you know the context and you know the Jewish scriptures, then you are clear. You are really clear that Jesus repeatedly, constantly claims to be God. But you're going to have to know the context. And so don't put yourself on shaky footing. Like some of those people say, I refuse to look at it in context. And now I don't really know if Jesus is claiming to be God. The fact is why people are critiquing the Bible, those who say Jesus is God and it's just not another opinion. And Jesus says, you need to be famous for loving people. And because those words are coming from God and they're not coming from me, just another Joe Schmo out here, but because they're coming from God, Jesus Christ, People take Jesus really seriously and say, you know what? Let's go out and change the world. Let's, let's team up with a coffee shop and let's serve a bunch of families in Arlington County. Let's start hospitals and orphanages and on and on and on it goes to make a positive impact on the world. Let's start a civil rights movement. Let's bring down the global slave trade because Jesus is God. If you take that number one leading force of why we're doing it, not because we're good people, but because Jesus said so and Jesus is God, what's going to happen to the world? It is a serious, at least for me, cause for pause, serious cause for pause. Jesus says in John 13, these words, let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way I've loved you, you love one another. This is how everyone is going to recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love that you have for each other. Be famous for love. Be famous for love. Be famous for loving your neighbor. Be famous for loving other people. You know, John Paul Sartre famously said, hell is other people. And we can laugh at that, uh, but is very different from what Jesus is saying. All right, other people can be difficult, but Jesus says we should be famous for loving them, for working hard at the mission. And listen, Christians, because Jesus Christ is God, they take his words very seriously and he puts us on a mission. And that mission is to impact the world and to make the world a better place and to be famous for loving people. It is a great mission. It's an extraordinary mission. And we should commit ourselves to making the mission clearer and sharper and better than ever. Now, last week I talked about going to Atlanta. I had a great time in Atlanta. We get to hear from all kinds of interesting people when I go to this conference. The uh, CEO of Home Depot came and talked to us. That was fascinating. This this uh, past year, actually, the one of the leaders of a company called, they own a couple of different companies, but Baby Einstein is one of the companies, he's a designer for it, and he gave a fascinating talk. He said, you know what? We never, we never have really ever studied young parents. 
We've never studied them to see how their lives completely change, like overnight. Here you have a young couple and they say, you know what? We'll never drive a minivan. We'll never live in the suburbs and we'll never be stay at home. You know, whatever. We're never going to quit our jobs. We're never going to do these things. And then they have a kid. And within weeks, they're living in the suburbs, they're driving minivans, and they're talking about quitting their jobs. Huge change in a short amount of time, and we've never studied them. And that was a really fascinating talk. But I, I want to talk to you about a conversation that we had with somebody who leads organizational health. And he talked to us about spending an entire day with a military special forces unit. And he said, man, it was one of the best organizational health conversations, discussions he's ever seen. He said, man, this unit is going to do something. They're going to do something awesome. And he said, I, two observations why, right? This is really important. He goes home that night and he talks to his wife. He says, you know what? I got two clear observations. You know, how did it go? Two clear observations. Observation number one, I have never heard the F word used so creatively and consistently all day long, all day long. That's observation number one. Observation number two, I have never seen such a healthy, full-on, outright discussion where nobody attacked each other personally, where nobody um, made personal condescension to somebody, but where everybody attacked the mission because they knew their mission was so important and they just left Everything, 100%, everything on the table because they knew their mission was important. It wasn't the kind of talk where people said stuff and other people held things back and then later on they found them in the hallway and found a sympathetic ear and said, oh, you know, I don't like that. No, 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 it wasn't one of those discussions. Everything was on the table. It was never a personal. It was always about the mission. Listen, everybody, that's what we need to do as a church. The mission that Christ has given us is the greatest mission that has ever existed. Be famous for love. And we need to work really hard to refine and define that. And you got to leave everything on the table. I have talked about this concept for years. We cannot falsely think that Jesus Christ is creating a spa for us. The church is not a spa. We don't come in and sit down in a hot tub and we say to the other person sit in the hot tub, how do you feel? I feel great. How do you feel? I feel great. The church, of course, should bring comfort. Sometimes we go to, we go to a, a spa like a gym, right? And we get a massage and it feels good. But much of the time, we go to a gym to work out where we hate the trainer because he's screaming at us and we hurt and we're exhausted and he's pushing us to the limit. The church is a whole lot more like a gym than it is a spa because what we're doing is so important. It is impacting the world and we come together and we leave everything on the table and we discuss and we educate and we press in because it's so important. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us the Bible What an amazing book with the words of Jesus Christ that calls us to make love famous. What a mission, what an impact. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.